This week on the Lectures in History podcast, University of Houston political science professor Brandon Roddinghouse discusses presidential scandals and how public reaction to them has changed over time. Hold tight, class starts right after this. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to my colleague, Jen. Thanks, Rachel. Hi, I'm Jen, one of the producers here at C-SPAN. And if you enjoy lectures in history, we think you'll also like reading our weekly American History TV newsletter. If you're into history, you'll appreciate being an American History TV insider. Every week we deliver advanced program highlights so you never miss out on learning more about the people and events that document the American story. It's the place to find out which lectures in history, Civil War battle talks, features on the presidency, and interviews with historians are coming up. Plus, you'll get highlights of featured C-SPAN podcasts. Subscribe today at c-span.org connect for your weekly dose of history every Friday. Thanks for being part of our community. Don't forget to visit c-span.org connect to sign up. Well, so for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about presidential power. We've been talking about the way foreign policy uh, is formed. We've been talking about domestic policy and some of the tools presidents have. Um, this week, we're going to talk about some of the pitfalls of being president. And we've hinted this along the way because we've been talking about the ways that presidents are kind of really hemmed in in terms of their abilities to do their job. And so one way that obviously creates serious problems for them to be able to act is when they are confronted with scandals that sometimes of their undo own doing and sometimes that are uh, that are kind of relational to what's going on in politics. Um, so this week we're going to spend a little bit of time talking again about limitations on the presidency. And this gets to our big theme about the way that the presidency is really limited by these institutional designs, right? On purpose, they're supposed to be limited in how they act. And this is a story about the way that these political circumstances can sometimes exacerbate some of those tensions. So we'll get a chance to talk about the way that, that scandals affect lawmaking, the way it affects sort of their ability to survive in office and everything in between. Um, this is motivated by um, a lot of recent events where we've seen the number of scandals ballooning in American politics. So this quote from Donald Trump, I think, says it all. He says, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters, okay? It's like incredible. Um, what he's trying to get at is basically that scandals are less important and impactful than they used to be. And so this motivated to me to kind of think about how this manifests in terms of presidential power and the ability for presidents to get things done. So one kind of summary question that a lot of people were asking was, you know, because President Trump had a tendency to exacerbate the truth and in some cases outright lie, there have been this sort of commentary and concerns about the way that American presidents are dealing with the people. And we had a lot of discussions a few weeks ago about the way that, you know, the presidency was designed to try to lead public opinion and some of the limitations in the ability to do so. And so one question is like whether or not these things have an effect on the American people at all. I want to make a case to you that it's hard for people to think scandals matter. That is, in some ways, scandals matter a lot less than they used to. And I'll provide some details about how that works. But I want to just sort of hint and note at the outset that it's not just about politics where we see this kind of process where scandals don't matter as much as they used to. Do you all remember the deflate gate controversy in the NFL? So if you didn't know, uh, didn't weren't paying attention during those years, Tom Brady basically and the Patriots were accused of deflating some of the footballs so that as quarterback he could get a better grip on them and therefore throw them better, right? 
this is a no-no, and of course, NFL rules have like specific kind of requirements about uh, you know what the precise level of inflation should be of these footballs. But it became a controversy because the Patriots got caught, and so this is a kind of mini scandal in the world of football. And um, people, um, some colleagues of mine, wrote. Uh, about this. <laughs> and so they basically took this one case study to decide if that was something that was problematic for people. Uh, and what they found was really interesting and very political. And I want to show why. So what they actually found was that when they did these sort of surveys of the public about the Flategate, that basically what they found is that, that the people's beliefs about the scandal was highly polarized by team loyalty. So if you like the Patriots, you didn't care. If you hated the Patriots, it's the worst scandal like in the history of the NFL. This is perfectly aligns with the way we think about partisanship, right? You've got team red and team blue, and you don't make any kind of crossover. And so that, I think, definitely creates a similar kind of pattern. What we also find is that the gaps are largest among people who are the most interested and knowledgeable fans. So people who are like to be paying a lot of attention to this or to politics are the ones who are most affected by it. So again, just like in politics, scandals only affect some people, and they certainly affect people in a very partisan way. So I thought this is really kind of stunning to see that the same patterns we're talking about are going to affect more or less what happens in both football and in politics. Okay, so just to give you a kind of summary of what we'll talk about, and some of the highlights of the literature on this. Um, the effect of scandals can be very different depending on the kind of scandal. So obviously, in many cases, you see serious damage to a president when they're involved in these kinds of scandals, sometimes irreparably. Uh, I'm finishing reading this book on Watergate. It's called Watergate, A New History. And you ask, like, you know, how much can you learn about a scandal that's, at this point, already 50 years old? There's a lot. And it tells us a lot about the way that the system responds to scandal. And so obviously, that's a scandal that was debilitating for the Nixon White House. But there are also other scandals that have very little impact. And so I'll give you a bunch of these that really don't amount to much. And so in that sense, scandals only matter if they're kind of of a certain type. Approval of the president definitely declines. We'll talk about the ways presidents try to get around this. For members of Congress, at least, you see a reduction in vote share, like when they run again, that the scandal will reduce how much of the vote they get. And of course, conditional on when the scandal occurred, um, you know, this likely to be more impactful or less impactful. Uh, the type of scandal matters and other conditions. So I'll give you some details about kind of when we're likely to see the president kind of most damaged by these various scandals. Um, I guess the good news in terms of thinking about the big picture is that basically these scandals do still matter. Um, although they don't affect everybody in the same way and presidents as partisans can kind of hide behind some of those labels, it's certainly been the case that the system shows a lot of adaptability to these scandals. And so presidents are not just kind of going to get off when they these things happen, there are still sort of elements within the political system that limit how um, they might get away with it. So scandals still do matter. And we've had a lot of them in American history. There have been several um, uh, that we, we, we've seen. Um, one of the more famous ones, the first really big one, was this one. This is the whiskey ring from 1875. This involves several members of the Grant administration. Now, Grant is kind of a war hero and the consensus to be president, but his administration was ripe with corruption. So in one of the very first presidential scandals, we see his personal secretary, uh, along with other federal employees, taking bribes from whiskey distillers so that they wouldn't have to pay taxes 
taxes on alcohol production. Ultimately, 110 people were convicted of defrauding the government, and it totaled to about $3 million. And I actually did look this up because I'm just that much of a nerd, and this is something like a billion dollars in today's money. So this is a lot of money that was able to wiggle around, and this was one of the first in history. The one that was the more impactful than this, though, has been the Teapot Dome scandal. You hear this talked about a lot as really the first scandal that involved the president directly and got up to the level of the cabinet. So this takes place in 1922. This is basically about 100 years ago. The Teapot Dome was refers to basically a plot of land in California. And I want to take you back to a time where, like, the U.S. domestic production of oil was all the oil they had. They didn't get oil from other places. Everything they produced in the country was consumed in the country. And so the U.S. Navy needed to have a steady supply of it. And so they find this oil in California under the Teapot Dome. Well, um, the good news is that they can use that and the Navy was going to reap the benefits. The bad news is that it's ripe for potential corruption. So Albert Fall, uh, who was the Secretary of the Interior, was charged with accepting bribes from various oil companies in exchange for the exclusive of rights to drill for the oil underneath there. It was the first time in history that a U.S. cabinet official had been convicted and went to jail. So it's an interesting relationship. And Warren Harding is considered to be a sort of a lousy president because of, he was sort of facilitated this, kind of this backslapping, you know, let it go along kind of a thing. Uh, and as a result, obviously, the scandal happens. We actually talked uh, our first week about the presidential greatness measures and how Warren Harding typically is very low on that list. And this is one of the reasons why. So I want to fast forward a little bit, though, to talk about how we might measure scandals in a more modern sense. So just to kind of draw on a bunch of work that I've done in terms of how we talk about presidential scandals and other scandals, um, the way we link this is to look at historical trends. And so from the 70s to more or less the present, we can look at scandals that are particular pieces of misbehavior. So this is things that are either moral wrongdoing or some kind of potential legal wrongdoing. It requires that this be a public thing, not a rumor. And it requires the president have to act, or in this case, I also include governors and members of Congress, senior administration officials, and um, other federal nominees. So over time, there's a lot of scandals. So 150 plus scandals at the national level for presidents. That includes the president as well as like, you know, cabinet members um, like um, Fall, like we just mentioned. Um, there are about 338 state scandals involving governors and governor's staff, and then there's more than 300 congressional scandals. So that's a lot, a lot of scandals, right? Um, and so we can use these data to be able to kind of see how the scandals have an effect on the political system, especially on the president. Now, so these are things that are scandals, right? Legal wrongdoing, moral wrongdoing, but there are a lot of things that are not scandals that get talked about. So one thing that's not a scandal is, for instance, um, sort of decoration ideas. You may remember that Melania Trump decorated the White House um, with these red Christmas trees. She got a lot of pushback on this because it, you know, defied sort of what normally members or what normally the White House does. So this is not a scandal in any particular way. Um, and it actually, I should say, is hard to be able to determine sometimes what's a scandal, what's not a scandal. So, um, for instance, last week, um, this became kind of an ongoing dispute, discussion, and also controversy about uh, the use of bears in national parks. So basically, the White House, it's sort of through the Park Service, was going to introduce bears to the particular places in the country where there needed to be kind of an increase in the bear population. Um, this got kind of magnified, <laughs> and so you can see that... As as a partisan issue, everything's a scandal potentially, right, if you can kind of make it that. But at least for definition purposes in terms of what I'll show you, this is not a scandal. This 
is just kind of outrage. But it underscores a really important point, and that is that basically this is something that you can manufacture, right? You can create this outrage over just about anything. And if you can create an outrage scandal over anything, then really nothing is a scandal. And so in some sense, then, scandals don't matter. Um, but we'll talk about some ways that they, they in fact do. So, I mean, if you think about this, then there's this kind of sort of concept that basically like scandals are happening all the time and it's really just debilitating the system. But the reality is that that's not really what's happening. And I showed you some verifiable numbers over the course of, what, 50 years that give you a sense of how many scandals there are. It's a lot, but not so many that they're happening every week, even though sometimes it seems like it, right? If you look at the history of this, especially with respect to presidents, it's not all scandal all the time. Scandals happen frequently, but not necessarily in proportion to the coverage that most people uh, assume. Financial scandals tend to dominate. Uh, personal and political scandals are less impactful. So these are things that either people are making mistakes or the things that you can track. And so as a result, you know, that's a happy occasion because it's not just people who are corrupt. Sometimes it's sort of rules that are problematic or they're not being enforced properly. And that's things you can fix. Also, most scandals don't involve the president. And so although we tend to think of these scandals as being things that hurt the president, sometimes it doesn't involve them at all. It's just the people around them. So we can tease that a little bit as we go. So talking about the various scandals, um, there's lots in presidential history that we've seen. Uh, obviously, Richard Nixon, I mentioned a bit ago, is sort of the poster for political scandals. But realistically, um, you know, other presidents have got a significant number of scandals, too. Ronald Reagan with Iran-Contra, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Bill Clinton with Whitewater and the Lewinsky scandal and George H.W. Bush, who had some scandals in nominees like Clarence Thomas there, all add up to a healthy number of scandals, but not so much that it kind of hits your imagination in a, in a big way. Oops. So here's a list of scandals by president. And you can see some variation like I'm talking about. And although Nixon tends to get the, you know, kind of most problematic, most, um, um, you know, kind of scandalized president, um, he's not the most scandal-ridden president. The most scandal-ridden president is Donald Trump. You can see there from the number there exceeding 50 in just a short four-year period. Ronald Reagan, although he was president for eight years, um, is number two there. He gets uh, more than 40, followed by Bill Clinton, who comes in at a third place. <laughs> <laughs> You're happy to get the bronze medal on this one, right? But uh, obviously, um, some of the scandals have been pretty impactful, right? Because a lot of them involved him personally or his finances personally. So you can see some variation in terms of these issues. Um, and it's interesting to note that uh, obviously, some presidents have a lot of scandals and some presidents don't have that many scandals. So like I said, I mean, you know, uh, Trump gets a lot of attention for being a you know, president who was in office while a lot of these scandals happened. Many of them were related to him. Sometimes they led to his impeachment. Sometimes they were about his cabinet. Um, the Atlantic here notes that Trump's scandals are never done. They seem to get worse. Um, but one question that people who study scandals, and certainly presidents and presidential scholars who think about the way that scandals impact uh, the White House is kind of when these scandals come. And so there is this assertion that, you know, scandals get worse in the second term because presidential um, ability to control what happens is minimized. You have a new kind of staff oftentimes, and you oftentimes have a kind of conflictual Congress, which does increase the number of scandals. So if you look at this, you can see some 
term-based changes. So for instance, looking at presidents who had two terms, you can see some interesting dimensions. In most cases, presidents had more scandals in their first term than their second term. And this is sort of not what's expected. You would expect to see kind of the opposite. You expect to see more like the Bush 43 pattern where he has more scandals in the second term than the first term. Um, like I said, you know, you oftentimes see Congress flip and you oftentimes have a kind of change in terms of the like, like the, the leadership in the White House, you know, staff turnover and things like that. And so instead of the group that brought you to the White House, you trust implicitly, sometimes you have like another group of people <laughs> who maybe you don't trust as much or maybe aren't as looking out strong at looking out for your interest. Um, so you see some changes. Um, what's also interesting is that um, you see here um, some of the more impactful scandals, though, in the second term. So Reagan with Iran-Contra, Iran Nixon, obviously, with Watergate, which kind of crosses over a couple terms, and Clinton with the Lewinsky scandal. These are tend to be kind of bigger scandals you see in the second term. So although, you know, we expect the opposite, we do see more big scandals in the first term than in the second term. So let's talk about what these scandals look like. So like I said, mostly they tend to be kind of financial, personal, and sometimes political, they're kind of evenly split. Um, most of the big scandals tend to be financial in origin of some kind. Some of them are international in origin. So for instance, the Trump-Ukraine scandals fit here, Iran-Contra fits here. So they don't tend to be international in origin like in, in the way that you often might think that like you know movies would portray, but they do obviously tend to have international implications in some cases. So you don't see it that much, but there is a small category there. But if you're a president and you're sort of stuck in this world where you have to decide what you're going to do when you're confronted by scandals, you have to take some kind of strategy. And so over time, we've seen presidents adapt their behavior to how the media and opposition in Congress uh, are attacking you. And so we can see a couple of different ways that presidents might approach how to get out of a scandal. And so to our sort of big question we've been asking is like, you know, will the scandal still matter and whether they still have an impact on the White House or on the political system? Well, presidents can try to sort of game that a little bit and they might do this in one of two ways. So you might see a president who's very forthcoming in terms of what happened during the scandal. So you see kind of Reagan <laughs> on one hand, you know, very kind of active. And the other is sort of stonewalling, where you try to limit what people know about the scandal with the hope that you can limit the ability for that scandal to continue to get worse. The thing is that those strategies both have implications. And so talking about the ways that they sort of functionally work is worthwhile. So let's talk about the Cases where presidents might stonewall. So I put Nixon here as a good example. His one of those situations where he stonewalled everything. <laughs> I don't want anyone to know anything about what's happening. Uh, but other presidents have taken a slightly different tact. So I want to give you some kind of rationale for why they do this and draw on some work that people have done to look at the strategies and then talk about kind of some of the characteristics that might produce stonewalling. But let's talk about what this is. So, what does it look like when a president stonewalls a scandal? Well, one of the things that we know is that presidents are basically going to try to limit how much information comes out. So withholding information, shunning blame, or attempting to evade consequences. This might mean in practice delaying 
information being released, releasing information just a little bit at a time or sometimes not at all, providing no information to investigators, not cooperating with other institutions like Congress or maybe the Justice Department, or sometimes deflecting blame with a partisan attack. This is a favorite one right here, right? Talking about how, well, this is just a witch hunt, like it's you know the case that the media are out to get me or my enemies are ganging up on me. So that's in some sense a stonewall. And so the question then is kind of what factors to consider in this context? Well, so obviously that's situational. And like we said earlier, the scandals matter and matter varying degrees because of these circumstances. So the first thing to consider is what's the likelihood the truth's going to come out? Is it the case that there's a really good chance this is going to become public. If not, then you can take a different strategy. So one of the things we find is that the lower the probability the truth is revealed, the more likely the president is to stonewall, right? I mean, this is what you do with your parents, right? <laughs> if they're not going to find out, then I'm not going to say anything. Makes total sense because in that sense, you want to make sure you, know, you limit the damage and presidents are the same. The cost of the opposition. So think about this. If the cost of pursuing that hostility is high, then it's going to be aware on your White House. And so what we find is that when you have higher the cost of continuing that hostility with the media or with Congress, then presidents are more likely to stonewall. The third is that the cost of um, continuing those hostilities, if it's the case that your approval ratings continue to drop, or if you have the real prospect of being impeached, which is a more common scenario in the last several years than it has been before that, then presidents are going to alter their ability to, or alter their actions. So the higher the cost to presidents in terms of the continuing hostilities, the more likely the president is to cooperate. So they want to make sure that like, they don't have the worst case scenario happen. So I want to walk through a couple of examples of how this works, what the setup looks like, and then what the conclusion looked like. So here's Bill Clinton from this famous speech that he gave immediately after the Lewinsky scandal broke. Now, just to give you a little history lesson, here you've got uh, the Drudge Report, which was kind of one of the first sort of online kind of news gossip sites. They break the story that says the president had an affair with an intern. This is something that, you know, for Bill Clinton wasn't like out of the question, right? He certainly had this, this before, right? He had been accused of having affairs before, but not like this. And so it was easy for them to deny it, which is exactly what the president did here. So here's a clip of that. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. So everything he said there was a lie, right? <laughs> Except the going back to work for the American people, which actually is a great piece to bracket because we'll talk about that as a strategy too. But obviously he did have a relationship with her. Um, it was clearly of a, a sexual origin and obviously he got nabbed for it. The other way to look at this is that the cover up can be about kind of how you prevent information from being released. Um, and so this, clip from Nixon during the Nixon-Frost discussions uh, as part of it. So just to sort of walk back in terms of where this was in history, after Nixon left office, he agreed to a series of interviews with this famous journalist. And so they talked through all these different things, including all the Watergate details. So this is a clip of him talking about how this is not a cover-up, even though historically it clearly was. My motive was not criminal. I didn't believe that we were covering any criminal activities. 
Uh, I didn't believe that John Mitchell was involved. Uh, I didn't believe uh, that, uh, for that matter, anybody else was. I was trying to contain it politically. And that's a very different motive from the motive of attempting to cover up criminal activities of an individual. And so there was no cover up of any criminal activities. That was not my motive. So Nixon says, I'm not covering up criminal activity, I'm covering up the political problem that related to this. It's still the same problem, right? And still stonewalling regardless. So this classifies as stonewalling too. Can hear it again it doesn't become more true <laughs> um, all right so if you look at this over time you can see not surprisingly that presidents are more likely to stonewall if the scandal involves them so you can see in 80, almost 80 percent of the cases where there's some potential for stonewalling presidents tend to do so the number in percentage is a lot lower if you look at cabinet members agency heads or other appointees it's between 40 and 50 percent so you can see a massive drop off in terms of the strategy here right again if the president's involved, there's a good chance it's going to get found out. But if other people are involved, it might not register. And so the likelihood is lower of it being discovered, and therefore you see the lower likelihood of them telling the truth about it. The less least amount of stonewalling happens if it's a nominee or the first lady. Uh, for a nominee, you can just cut them loose, right? To say, hey, sorry, made a mistake. We're not having you anymore. For the first lady, um, I don't know how to read that. <laughs> I guess it's because the first lady can't be like just sort of ignored. Uh, that's not done. But it could be that it's the case that they simply, um, you know, they simply like uh, consider it family and off limits. So it's possible that's what's happening, but not totally sure. But let's talk about sort of the conditions in which they're likely to stonewall. So I gave you some kind of theoretical moments where we're likely to see presidents stonewall or not. And just to kind of recap and extend some of those things, you can see here the kind of probability that a president will stonewall or not based upon some of those conditions. So obviously, like I just showed you, when the president's involved, they're 40% more likely to stonewall. Uh, if the scandal is political, then they're 73% more likely to stonewall. This is the Nixon scenario. What did he say? I'm not covering up the criminal activity, I'm covering up the political mess. Well, that's exactly what we see here, and basically he proves this point. In the cable TV era post-1981, you see presidents are less likely to stonewall. Uh, it's interesting because the kind of implication is that they're more likely to get caught. You've got more news networks, you've got more reporters, you've got more people digging you're more likely to get caught. So the prediction is that you stonewall less and actually, uh, or you, you uh, and so that's exactly what we find. We also see divided government in a similar position. If the president confronts an opposition Congress, they're more likely, uh, they're less likely to, to stonewall. And so that's a big finding too. And actually good for kind of democratic interactions where you'd like to see the kind of probability go down if there's going to be a chance that they're going to get found out and that interparty friction, which we'll talk all about next week, <laughs> uh, is going to be uh, part of that story. So I want to break this down even further and talk about one particular scandal. And it's instructive because this is a scandal where there's really two parts. So this is the Iran-Contra scandal. Do you all have a sense of what this was? This gets deep into the weeds, yeah? Okay. Um, Okay, so buckle up. <laughs> this is a stunning scandal that goes across a couple of different kind of dimensions of domestic policy and foreign policy. But really, I want to highlight two features. There's basically one that involves the president and one that doesn't. So 
The scandal takes place in the second administration of Ronald Reagan, 85 to 86. The first part of the scandal uncovers a covert policy of arms sales to Iran. This is aimed at convincing moderate elements in Iran to assist efforts to release American hostages who had been held in Iran for years, right? So this is basically like a sort of foreign policy goal from the president. This was authorized by President Reagan in 1985. The second part of the scandal, though, was that there was an exposition of a cover-up, um, this covert policy supporting the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. So it's a separate policy issue. This is basically like we said last week. We talked about the Reagan doctrine, which was to try to limit the spread of communism in South America. Well, one of the ways that they did this was to funnel covert money to groups that were trying to fight against some of the people who were promoting that. So that's the second part of the scandal. They're not related in terms of policy, but the Iran-Contra issue merges them together. So that's why it's a weird merger of things, right? Iran and Con the Contras are two different continents, but this is why it's sort of one big scandal. This second part was illegal because Congress forbid it. And so basically this is the president going around Congress illegally. That's the scandal. So just a note, when the president was not involved in the scandal, which as I said was wide ranging, they cooperated. The National Security Advisor John Poindexter resigned and Oliver North, um, who was the National Security Council, was fired. Uh, President Reagan formed a special commission headed by former Texas Senator John Tower. And then an independent counsel requested the White House investigate the wrongdoing of the NSA. And the White House cooperated. So basically, here's a situation where on the parts the president was not involved in, they were willing to cooperate and give other branches what they wanted. So here's Reagan from a speech saying more or less exactly that. For the past three months, I've been silent on the revelations about Iran. And you must have been thinking, well, why doesn't he tell us what's happening? Why doesn't he just speak to us as he has in the past when we've faced troubles or tragedies? Others of you, I guess, were thinking, what's he doing hiding out in the White House? Well, the reason I haven't spoken to you before now is this. You deserve the truth. And as frustrating as the waiting has been, I felt it was improper to come to you with sketchy reports or possibly even erroneous statements, which would then have to be corrected, creating even more doubt and confusion. There's been enough of that. I paid a price for my silence in terms of your trust and confidence, but I've had to wait, as you have, for the complete story. That's why I appointed Ambassador David Abshire as my special counselor to help get out the thousands of documents to the various investigations. And I appointed a special review board, the Tower Board, which took on the chore of pulling the truth together from me and getting to the bottom of things. It has now issued its findings. I'm often accused of being an optimist, and it's true. I had to hunt pretty hard to find any good news in the board's report. As you know, it's well stocked with criticisms, which I'll discuss in a moment. But I was very relieved to read this sentence. The board is convinced that the president does indeed want the full story to be told. And that will continue to be my pledge to you as the other investigations go forward. I want to thank the members of the panel, former John, Senator John Tower, former Secretary of State Edmund Muskie, and former National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft. They have done the nation, as well as me personally, a great service by submitting a report of such integrity and depth. They have my genuine and enduring gratitude. So here you see Reagan bragging, right, about all the things they did to comply. All these documents, all this time, staff are available. This is the White House cooperating. But, 
things are different when the president is involved in a scandal. Like we said, we should expect to see a change of strategy, which is exactly what we see. So in cases where the president was involved, you see them stonewall. So John Poindexter and, um, and Admiral Casey here argued against the disclosure of the arms sales to protect the president. That is, again, this is illegal. Congress said no, and the White House did it anyway. Well, if you put the president in the middle of this, that's an impeachable offense, no question. So they argued against it as much as they could, and they more or less got their way. North and Poindexter shredded documents at the NSC. This is sort of famously part of this scandal, destroying the presidential finding that authorized the Iranian arms sale. So it does not exist, and the special prosecutor obviously can't find it, but they have evidence that it happened. The administration did not allow for the declassification of material needed to prosecute Oliver North. So in some cases, they cooperate. In some cases, they stonewall. Here is Reagan talking about that second part lot about the staff of the National Security Council in recent months. Well, I can tell you they are good and dedicated government employees who put in long hours for the nation's benefit. They are eager and anxious to serve their country. One thing still upsetting me, however, is that no one kept proper records of meetings or decisions. This led to my failure to recollect whether I approved an armed shipment before or after the fact. I did approve it. I just can't say specifically when. But rest assured, there's plenty of record keeping now going on at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. <laughs> so now we're keeping track. <laughs> Do you all believe him? Did you get the sense that, I mean, this is the great communicator, right? We've talked about Reagan is one of the better at communicating his position to people. But in this case, he had to do a lot of gymnastics to get there. You guys convinced, persuaded? <laughs> Some skepticism? Well, I don't blame you. Um, and because we know the strategy is involved, uh, it gives us a sort of flavor for how presidents are handling this, right? So when you look at how presidents are trying to kind of maneuver around a scandal, think about this because it'll give you a sense of what the strategic kind of questions are. But even after the scandal happens and the ways that presidents react isn't just about kind of what legally they're on the hook for, but also kind of what happens in terms of their bigger political impacts. We've talked a lot about the ways that presidents use their tools to try to accommodate Congress and try to push their own policies ahead, sometimes without acting um, with them, sometimes acting alone. And so the kind of way the presidents handle their political business after a scandal is also relevant to thinking about the ways that they get around these scandals. So two different options presidents might engage when it comes to rectifying a scandal. Either they can kind of go big and do a lot more, or they can do a lot less. Now, sometimes they can do this on their own. Sometimes they have to have help. So just two ways to think about this. So in the summer of 2013, the Obama White House was confronted with several different scandals. And the chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, indicated that they expected the White House to spend no more than 10% of their time on these controversies. I thought that was interesting because he puts a specific number on it. <laughs> and so to me, this is a stunning way to be able to kind of identify exactly what they expect to have happen uh, or not happen. Now, contrast that with Governor Sarah Palin when she was in office before she was picked to be the vice presidential nominee for John McCain. She mentioned that the Troopergate scandal, which involved a um, staff lawyer um, and um, kind of um, a relationship with one of her, um, with one of her family members, um, the process cost about $2 million for the state and of course some time. And what um, she said at the time was that this distracted the staff from doing the real work of the state. And so either these 
scandals matter a lot and hurt the White House's ability to be able to act and operate, or they have no effect and just kind of glances off their back. So we can track to see what presidents do in these kinds of scandals. So, you know, how should presidents react when they're confronted with these scandals? I, I did not pick this picture of Monica Lewinsky on purpose. It was like one of the first that showed up, but she looks really unhappy in this. <laughs> this is one of the uh, times that she's being deposed uh, during the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. So how do presidents react to the uh, kind of political side of things? Well, one of the things we know is that um, if you aggregate all the scandals and all the uh, sort of attention presidents give to these various tools, you can see some interesting patterns. What presidents do is they spend more time giving smaller speeches like around the country. They have more public appearances in that same vein and they enact more determinations which are like unilateral foreign policy items. One of the things they do less of is major speeches. So really presidents kind of play small ball here. They really go local. They try to kind of build the, uh, their kind of credibility back kind of like community by community basically. They don't go big and have major speeches because there's a larger tendency for them to get kind of batted down. We talked weeks ago about how presidents generally speaking are trying to keep it local because it's where they're getting better more favorable coverage. The same is true here. It's just of a different thing. The other thing we know is that when presidents give speeches, especially State of the Union speeches, which they have to give, right? They can't not give one <laughs> just because there's a scandal. So they have to give the State of the Union speech. And so it's actually a perfect opportunity for us to see, okay, what do they talk about in a State of the Union after a scandal? Well, here's what they do, and it's totally predictable. They actually talk more. And so they have bigger speeches, longer speeches. So this is the registering of the number of sentences. So you see more than 75 additional sentences. The other is that um, the, they are spending more time talking about economics, education, and social welfare issues. So they really pivot to the things people care about. And that's not surprising, right? Considering that this is um, something that makes them look bad in public, so they want to try to repair their public image. Here's a and pursued a new strategy oops, for sorry. prosperity. Here's an example of this, um, where this is a president who, Bill Clinton giving his State of the Union speech right after the Lewinsky scandal breaks. And so Congress is considering impeachment. He has to do something to try to dissuade them potentially from that, but also be able to kind of regain the sort of credibility of the office. So here is his reaction in this slice. Have pursued a new strategy for prosperity, fiscal discipline to cut interest rates and spur growth, investments in education and skills and science and technology and transportation to prepare our people for the new economy, new markets for American products and American workers. When I took office, the deficit for 1998 was projected to be $357 billion and heading higher. This year, our deficit is projected to be $10 billion and heading lower. For three decades, six presidents have come before you to warn of the damage deficits posed to our nation. Tonight I come before you to announce that the federal deficit, once so incomprehensibly large that it had 11 zeros, will be simply zero.
so there's a lot of applause there, right? Including like Newt Gingrich, who's the Speaker of the House standing right behind him, who's leading efforts to impeach him, <laughs> right? Um, but it's something about economics and the sort of success of the economy that definitely promotes a kind of unity in government. And even when you're in the midst of a scandal, it can be something that's useful for presidents. And so here we see President Clinton sort of pivoting to a slightly different uh, issue, trying to get around the scandal. But that begs the question about whether or not a scandal can hurt you legislatively. Now, one of the things we've talked about is that basically that scandals tend to polarize people, just like it polarizes you know, people who are NFL fans of the Patriots or not. And so it's worth asking how this sort of manifests for them. So just to give you a kind of summary of this over the course of the full data set from the 1972 to, and I just cut it off here at, at uh, 2012, you can see here the black bar is the number of scandals cumulative in an administration, so they kind of add up over time. The graph that's the uh, gray bar is um, about the support from the Senate, and then the dotted line is party unity. So you would expect to see party unity increase because you've got essentially both sides sort of leading to their own camps, right? And you also would expect to see sort of, you know, support waiver because if you're a president in trouble, maybe it's the case that the body decides to abandon you and your issues. In any case, you're not able to be as effective as a leader legislatively. So you can sort of see some differences here. It's hard to make it sort of out because there's lots of different sort of things that are happening all at once, but I want to give you a kind of summary of what we find. So one piece of sort of summary detail is that we actually see party unity increasing, and I sort of expected this, like I mentioned. You see this for both in-partisans and out-partisans. So when a president has more scandals in their administration, as those add up, you tend to see Democrats voting more with Democrats and Republicans voting more with Republicans. Now this is happening consistently over time anyway. We'll actually talk about this next week, but we also see this when scandals punctuate. So one of the things this does is to lead to more polarization. So you're seeing basically scandals lead to additional kind of legislative polarization, which has other implications for how to get around it. So it's one thing that we can kind of identify. The other thing we can identify is that scandals actually are more damaging to Republican presidents, especially in legislative support. Actually, the only type of president who loses support in Congress or Republican presidents. The same effect is not true for Democratic presidents. And so some explanation for this is basically that for Republicans, they expect a certain kind of level of, you know, sort of moral purity. And this is related to the sort of foundations of their support uh, among more, you know, um, more Christian um, individuals. And we've talked about this in the course of the last, you know, 40, 50 years. So it's possible that's what's happening here. Um, but in any case, this is certainly something we've seen be a prominent feature in how the presidents are different in that way. So just to give us a kind of summary before we dig into like what's happening, <laughs> why is this all happening, um, I want to talk about when scandals have a limited effect. So like I said, you know, it's not the case that scandals are always impactful. They don't always have a big impact. One a great example here is you see John Sununu, who is the chief of staff for George H.W. Bush. Um, he was caught using a military plane to fly home to New Hampshire. This was something that was sort of totally catchable. <laughs> like, he wasn't trying to hide it. He, uh, you know, figured it out. He broke the rule. Sorry. He apologized. And then 
put, you know, paid the fee basically to sort of have the cover the cost of it. This is one of those scandals that just comes and goes. Not that interesting, not that impactful, had no ramifications for the president or for the staff. And this is actually somewhat common. So for most low-level scandals, government basically proceeds largely as business as usual. There really aren't that many differences. Um, most scandals are brief, involve a few people, and basically either lead to quick resignation or people forget. Um, we do see, like I mentioned, though, that on some key legislative votes and for total support, that um, really there's no significant effect in terms of legislative skill. So scandals don't have a big effect on the ability to pass legislation. They just don't. For presidents who are Republican, sometimes we see a lack of party unity. So there may be some abandonment there. But overall, honestly, there really isn't a significant effect in terms of legislation. So in a way, that's good news, because if these scandals debilitate the system and hurt the president's ability to act, then it could lead to bigger impacts in terms of governing. But we actually don't see that in most scandals. But there are some scandals where you do see them having a major impact on governing. So when are those cases? Well, we certainly see both presidents and I threw in governors here because governors are like chief executives of their states. Um, they do respond aggressively to revelations of scandals, both large and small, and they adopt their, adapt their behavior to sort of accommodate. So I showed you some examples of how that was true. Polarization increases a little bit. We also see the system react in interesting ways. One of the things we see is that there are more hearings in Congress to probe wrongdoing. So we can track basically after a scandal does Congress increase the number of hearings, and they do. So they are checking to see if like, there's anything else that's happening. The other thing is that we see internal agencies in the executive branch doing more audits and reviews of finances to make sure there aren't other problems that are lurking. And so any scandal can trigger this. And so it's a good thing to see government responding in a way that makes it so that you know we're checking that there aren't any further problems. OK, so what are we talking about here? Ultimately. The consequences of scandals can be pretty wide, but I've tried to give you some consolidated views of how this typically over the past 50 years has happened. In some cases, we see Congress reasserting its power. Now, we've talked a lot about how presidents are trying to expand their power, but we also see times where Congress has tried to react to that. So during like Watergate, we saw this was true. Um, during, um, during the Vietnam War, we saw Congress doing this. So there are those moments where Congress will try to claw back power, and scandals are one of those cases. Sometimes the public just accepts that behavior, and that can lead to changes. So one of the reasons scandals may not matter as much anymore is that you know, people are more accommodating of these things. They're not as like willing to punish certain politicians for some kinds of actions. Sometimes it leads to key resignations, media scrutiny, sometimes tougher ethics laws. I didn't talk about this, but in some work you see basically, sometimes you'll see state level legislation to increase the kind of rules at the state level to limit how scandals might happen in the future. So that's a, a useful way to react to scandals. See, like, let's, let's make sure this doesn't happen anymore. And finally, it's possible that like nothing happens, <laughs> literally nothing happens because scandals in some cases just don't hit like they used to. But the question then is like, why? I mean, like we've said a lot, we live in a polarized world where the kind of interaction between Republicans and Democrats is changed. And you don't see scandals mattering, at least for some people, um, versus so in some cases for other people, they say that these scandals are the worst things to ever happen. Why is this the case? Well, some reasons why this is the case is that essentially scandals aren't deal breakers for a lot of people. Some scholars have found that when you look at this, 
you can see that basically the public is not as concerned about scandals as they used to. Um, specifically, it's partisanship. Partisanship can limit the negative effects of scandal. So if your preferred candidate is caught in a scandal, it doesn't bother you. But if the opposition candidate is caught in scandal, it's the worst thing they've ever done, <laughs> right? And they should never be allowed to be near the ballot box. So that partisanship limits the ability to uh, kind of have accountability in a scandal. So in that sense, then scandals are less impactful. Um, scholars have also shown basically that the effect of scandals is pretty short-lived and flees really quickly. And so in scholarship, what people do is like an experiment where you, know, you give people a hypothetical scandal, and then a couple weeks later, test them again, and a couple weeks later, test them again. Now, at first, of course, people are like, oh, that's bad. Don't do that. And two weeks later, it's like, eh, it's OK. And then two weeks later <laughs> after that, they're like, uh, what? <laughs> I don't remember what you meant. So those obviously sort of give us a sense that the shelf life of a scandal is really short. And so you don't see those being impactful. So that certainly has an effect. Another way this has an effect is that basically, even in a scandal, ideology holds. So for presidents, if you're worried about making sure your base is happy, that's the key. The scandals are not going to be impactful um, because the people who like you like you for reasons that aren't related to your personality or things like that. And so candidates who are ideologically proximate are still favored despite the scandal. Um, also, <laughs> frankly, it's the case that, uh, and I'm sure none of you think this way, but it has been the case that if you uh, see your opponent in a worse political position, it makes you happy, right? You like it. <laughs> you like your opponents to suffer a little bit. Um, so I'll talk about this in a second. But basically, candidates who promise to pass policies that disproportionately harm supporters of the opposing political party are favored. And so there is this kind of affective polarization, right? Where you know, if your group is hurting and my group is OK, I'm happy with it, right? That makes me pleased. Um, we call this. Political schadenfreude, <laughs> uh, where like we take pleasure in other people's, especially other groups who we don't like's misery, right? Um, so I use this as an example here. A lot of stuff about Hunter Biden, right? Um, this is why it's become such a kind of commonplace story, right? Is that having other people sort of suffer, especially the opponents politically suffer, is uh, uh, something that makes you pleased, right? Makes you happy, and so that's part of it. But like I said, the root of a lot of this is about partisanship. Um, and when you have partisanship affect scandals, it means that they're not going to be as impactful as they otherwise would be. So a couple of things to note here. Um, a couple of my colleagues did a really interesting study. They basically did a survey experiment where they asked people about Donald Trump's acquittal for his second impeachment. And what they found was that support for the acquittal was largely static and that the partisanship was strongly influenced whether the public accepted the veracity and importance of the, uh, of the political information. So. People who liked Donald Trump were good with the acquittal. People who didn't thought it was bad and wrong. So again, partisanship manifests in something really important like impeachment. And impeachment's like one of the only ways we have to really legitimately hold presidents accountable. So that limitation obviously is restrained by partisanship. The other component of this is that anger sells. If you're a candidate, if you're a president incumbent, you are happy to see anger as part of this, because you can rile up your base in a really strong, fast way, right? So for instance, um, not to sort of hit on the Hunter Biden point again, but it tends to pop up. If you Google search Hunter Biden, this is all of what shows up. So here's basically my kind of universe of, uh, of, of pictures. So sort of the graininess of it and the kind of, you know, the, the um, sort of um, 
the kind of complexity here uh, certainly sort of reflects the fact that this is something that the um, you know kind of opponents of Hunter Biden and President Biden are trying to like promote, right? It's just sort of a commonplace activity. And it works. So what people have found is that exposure to angry in partisan politicians significantly increases the amount of anger, disgust, and outrage expressed by, expressed by co-rank-and-file partisans. So basically, um, if you see anger in one sort of condition, you're more likely to sort of express it yourself. So it reinforces itself over time. So again, the more we can make people unhappy, the more scandals are just exacerbating that partisanship. The other component to this, and so we've been talking a lot about the ways that, you know, that presidents basically operate within this political system. And so the way scandals manifest sometimes is not just related to what individuals do, but also the way that you see the other branches act. And one of the things we've seen is that the Supreme Court basically has loosened laws that describe what bribery is. And so this actually gets to a case involving Governor McDonald from Virginia. The, he was convicted of bribery in a very sort of pronounced public way. Um, he was literally accused of taking gifts from wealthy donors. He was like, had pictures taken of him like in a Ferrari with like a gold Rolex watch on. <laughs> they had him dead to rights. The question wasn't so much did he do it, it was whether the context was that it was a gift to him or whether it was a bribe. Well, the Supreme Court took this up and basically says that what constitutes an official act is still um, unclear in most statutes. And so the court basically undid the jury's finding that this was bribery and said, in fact, we don't really know what it is, but it's not bribery because you didn't prove that. So as a result, you're seeing a lot of overturning of some of these scandal cases. And this is just a long way of saying that for those people who have been convicted of bribery, like members of Congress I reference here and other state legislators, the fact that they have to have different instructions for what constitutes bribery, and in some cases you might see like prosecutors not choosing to prosecute means that you're seeing scandals sort of less than we used to. And so as a result, the Supreme Court has a lot to say in terms of what is and is not scandal. But more back to kind of thinking about how we as citizens process political scandals, the trust in the media is a huge component here. In particular, it's to some degree asymmetric. Conservative trust in the media has really cratered. So looking at some details from various organizations, this is from Pew, what they find is that only 35% of Republicans today say they trust national news organization compared to 70% in 2016. That was not very long ago. Conservative trust in national news organizations has fallen by 14% since late 2019 compared to single drops during each year during the Trump era. So that is a serious decline and it's contributing to the inability for us to decide kind of what scandals are important and what's not important in a nonpartisan way. If you look at the details here from Pew, you can see clearly that we as a country are getting our news from different sources, Republicans from one, Democrats from another. So Democrats here mostly from CNN and NBC, Republicans from Fox News and ABC. So that means that in some cases, people live in different media ecosystems, and that's creating this inability for us to agree on like what is a scandal and therefore how a president might handle it. So in searching for these, I found this, which I thought was <laughs> really stunning. New Gingrich's three marriages mean he might make a strong president 
really. I didn't read the article, so I don't know how, <laughs> but uh, the headline says it all, right? That we live in a different world, right? We live in our own media ecosystems where partisanship guides the day. We also know that elites still matter, right? Speaking of sort of partisanship in the news, here's Tucker Carlson, who's very prominent, clearly on the conservative side. One of the things people have found in looking at this is that a jump in scandal-related tweets by one group affects the volume of other tweets. So basically what happens is when you see a, something scandalous about an opponent, you're more likely to retweet it, right? And so what this shows is that, you know, um, over the long run, elites basically drive supporters to more of these things rather than the other way around. So there is still a kind of elite effect where whatever the elites are saying is a problem politically is now something that we see more of and then share more of. And so that top-down relationship continues. And that, of course, exacerbates some of how these things go. So, for instance, now you can do things like create these movies about the kind of scandalized son of the president. The other factor is that all politics are now national. And one of the ways we know this is that you're seeing the decline in the percentage of the um, kind of electorate who's thinking about the politicians' local sort of connections. So Matt Grossman, who's a Michigan State, tweeted this out from a, a, some, some scholarship that, um, that he had called, where basically it shows that, that you've got a nationalization of elections. So local factors such as incumbency, candidate quality, candidate spending, barely registered in comparison to partisanship and presidential views. So again, like you're seeing basically people care about national politics and less about local politics. And as a result, you're seeing these things magnify on a pretty big scale, right? Uh, obviously, uh, the sort of George Santos phenomenon where despite being literally indicted and having like all these bad things said about you, you're sort of continue to manage to survive. So to sum up, scandals are less impactful in a modern era for the following reasons. Partisanship, misinformation, fewer institutional nets, we have our own media ecosystems, lower trust in the media, and nationalized politics. All this is leading to is this sort of story where we can see, since we have data from the 70s to the present, how this manifests. So this is sort of showing my work. <laughs> this is our, this is a, 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 a statistical analysis, but let me summarize it for you. Basically, one of the things we can do is to look to see how long scandals last and the degree to which other factors limit how long or short they are. So what this gives us here is a measure of, in a polarized era, beginning in the 2000s, do scandals elongate or are they shorter? Now, if scandals matter more, we should see them getting shorter, right? That is, we catch you and you quit. They're longer if you stonewall, you try to drag it out, you appeal to your partisans and try to survive in office. What we find here is basically that the polarized era, we see the likelihood of presidents surviving significantly higher. And you know, over time, the curve um, sort of exacerbates that. So basically, the likelihood of a person surviving in office is higher when the, in the more polarized era. So again, this sort of reinforces our sense that this is sort of a, a more kind of unique phenomenon, right, to where we are now. And that's something that's potentially troublesome. So politicians in prior eras face slightly more serious negative consequences from scandals than those in later eras. 
Here you see in the background Bob Menendez, who you probably paid some attention to, right? Senator Menendez, who has been uh, snagged in the legal net <laughs> for potentially accepting bribes. Um, Congressional, just to give you a sense of kind of what the rest of the data look like, congressional and gubernatorial scandals in the Watergate era led to more resignations, but fewer resignations of White House officials. Uh, during the Trump administration, federal executive officials survived in office at rates greater than the past era, but still scandals ended congressional careers. So it's sort of a Trump thing. The Trump era definitely shows that some of those cabinet officials and the president held on for longer than in comparative cases in prior eras. So there's some support here for this sort of Trump effect where Donald Trump kind of changes the nature of the way scandals affect the public. So what's going on <laughs> with this largely dumpster fire <laughs> in American politics? Well, like we said, basically people live in their own sort of media ecosystem and like the information that we get overwhelms us. So we don't know what's true and what's not true. So in some cases, a lot of people have sort of given up in terms of trying to find out what the truth is. And that's something the partisanship is exacerbating. So one of the things we find too in sort of scholarship more broadly is that you know, more people are comfortable siding with their political tribe. Um, if everything's up for grabs and it's hard to sift through competing narratives to find the truth, then there's nothing left but culture war politics. It's sort of us versus them and persuasion is really hard. So for presidents, they face this all the time when they're trying to negotiate some kind of a resolution to a piece of legislation, but it's also the case in times of crisis that presidents are having trouble negotiating because people don't trust each other and the two opposing sides can't agree even on what's a scandal. And so as a result, it tends to create this potential problem. The base kind of likes it. We talked weeks ago about fundraising and fundraising is something that even a scandal can't hurt. So here's a, uh, here's a, here's a headline from The Hill, basically Trump's fundraising increased after he was indicted the first time. So that's pretty stunning to see <laughs> as an outcome, right? Another way to look at this is if you look at um, historically, um, we do a lot of our work, right? And you guys do your papers and, and some of the other assignments in terms of what the um, you know, past White Houses have done. Well, here's uh, an interesting memo from the Watergate era. This is from Dave Gergen, who became a kind of sort of celebrity presidential counselor to H.R. Haldeman, who was the chief of staff for President Nixon. There's a lot in this, but what he says effectively here, the blue arrow is, is that the president needs to rebuild public confidence. And this is basically a year before Nixon resigns. That uh, one of the first steps is for his senior people to begin rallying behind him, showing that they have such confidence. That's totally lost to view now as we are transfixed on stories of Watergate crumbling and desperate men pitchforking each other in the night. So um, in addition to being well-written and funny, like it's certainly true where you are seeing effectively the White House trying to do damage control on how to make this happen. The presidents know that it's not over till it's over, right? Here's a young president, here's a young President Nixon before he was president, basically saying after he lost the gubernatorial race um, that he was gonna be out of politics. Well, that didn't stay <laughs> very long. So even people who are fictionally accused of crimes can survive them. You all watch the West Wing. I've talked this a little bit here and there, but do you remember when President Bartlett was accused of a scandal, right? He basically misled the American people that he had a disease, he had MS, and didn't disclose it. Um, so even fictional presidents can find a way around this. And so there's like a whole story arc where basically there's a concern the president was gonna get impeached for this. Certainly took some political lumps, but 
the question remains how presidents might survive a scandal. Um, we've talked in the past, actually, you see here in the background, um, President Obama wearing the tan suit, right? Um, this became kind of like a controversy, not a scandal because it doesn't qualify, but obviously political friction in some cases is magnified and that we see uh, have an effect on the political system. So you can certainly see this impact how Congress or how the president sort of deal with this. So obviously here, um, you know, again, here's another kind of Watergate era memo a couple of months after the one I just showed you. And this is a situation where they did a whip count. And so they're trying to figure out like where they stood in terms of Congress. So just to kind of summarize it, basically they're looking at people who are definitely with us and definitely against us, and then people who are leaning with us and sort of leaning against us. And so even up to, you know, literally a few months here until President Nixon resigns, the White House is concerned about where they stand in Congress. Another way that they ask this question is whether or not the president can still govern. I found these at the Reagan Library. And so one of the things that they did in the Reagan administration was to pose these alternatives for people. You know, do you like X or do you like Y? In this case, they asked during the heat of Iran-Contra whether the president could still govern. So in one case, they say this sort of hypothetical Miller believes that the Iranian incident shows President Reagan may have made mistakes, but it does not raise questions about his ability to run the country. Brown, on the other hand, believes the incident shows Reagan is not in control of the presidency and therefore raises serious questions about his ability to run the country. Well, you can see here that there's not much change overall. Generally speaking, people believe, like Miller, that the president was still able to hold the White House effectively and do their job realistically well. So this is, again, another way that presidents try to game this, right? They try to see, like, what's the outcome here? What's the potential strategy that, um, and, you know, to get out of this, and what do people feel? So to kind of summarize this, how do we handle scandal? Now, presidents, like we said, have been confronted with all these different opportunities to be able to try to get out of scandals when they come. What should they do? So one thing they can do is to rally the base. We know that works, especially in a modern sense. Get the truth out early. Get good lawyers. <laughs> uh, this is probably a good example and good advice generally, but certainly in a scandal, it's worth doing. Internal damage control. Make sure that you've got everyone in your team on the same page. Make sure the information is boring. If there's no excitement, there's no scandal. Try to keep it just boring. <laughs> no one's talking about it. And finally, keep being president. One of the things we said earlier that was important for presidents is to try to kind of pivot to something that people like. And so keeping on track in terms of legislation, in terms of your policy goals, is key. Finally, make it one news cycle. Try not to keep it extended. The longer it goes, the more it hurts. Okay, so how do we not handle scandal? I use Nixon here as a good example of this because obviously almost everything the Nixon administration did was wrong in terms of our playbook. Number one, don't try to change the subject. It's too hard. People want to talk about it, they're going to talk about it. Number two, don't get defensive or indignant. That means that people think you're lying. And finally, the cover-up is worse than the crime. Here's Nixon's problem, right? If you try to cover it up, it's going to make it worse and you just dig yourself deeper and deeper in that hole. So presidents have found this out the hard way. And so why do these scandals matter? Well, at the end of the day, basically, it's about accountability. And so we've said that presidents obviously have to navigate around these different crises. Sometimes they make them. Sometimes, you know, they have to just work through them. But 
for presidents and confronted with scandals, it's important not just in terms of how they do their job, but also what it says about the full political system. And that's really been a hallmark of what we've tried to convey in our class. Like how do presidents navigate through this complicated set of arrangements that the Constitution provides and, and requires? So accountability matters here, right? So it's not just about the president and sort of how they can govern, but that matters, obviously, in terms of how things move. But also, in terms of the bigger picture, if scandals don't matter anymore, accountability is hurt, because then we don't have the ability to hold people to justice on these things that they've done wrong on. And so some findings here are really interesting in this, and instructive and helpful. So um, a couple of my colleagues did a really cool project where they look at randomly audited House members. And what they found was that if you got selected as somebody who was going to get the audit, then you were more likely to retire than somebody who wasn't. And he also saw those folks face more competitive elections. So what this means is that when people get watched, when there's more digging, then accountability increases and you see that become like an ongoing issue. And so this is good news for the public and for the system because if people pay attention and start to really understand what's going on, sometimes they don't like what they see. And as a result, you see the scandal or potential scandal creating um, more competition. Um, in a different work, um, what people also find is that you can actually encourage people to pay attention to the things that matter in scandals. And so some work was sort of basically randomly assigned certain Republicans to see more Trump-Russia headlines. And what happened was that they reacted more negatively than Democrats or independents, rating Trump's performance lower and expressing more negative emotions about him. So we talk a lot about the way that, like, living in our own media world is a problem. You don't see what everyone else is seeing. And so having a kind of diverse media diet is really critical. And what we find in, is that when people have that diverse media diet, sometimes they don't like what they see. And so that limitation also prevents there from being, um, you know, kind of this, um, you know, kind of whole kind of, um, you know, sort of putting your head in the ground and sort of just ignoring some of the things that are happening. It's also helpful that guardrails form inside parties to save the party from itself. Establishing new rules and trying to vet candidates a little bit better is useful. And so parties have a big function here in terms of trying to protect democracy, um, which is in some cases not what they're designed to do, right? They're designed to promote kind of partisan interests and unify people of like minds inside government and outside government. But parties also have a role here in terms of trying to like prevent bad actors from engaging in the political system. So in that sense, then scandals are good. Scandals help. And we would like to see more presidential scandals for that reason alone, right? Because we want to see more accountability and more interactions like that. But the big picture, of course, is that, you know, we care about how presidents function in government. And scandals can limit that ability, but it also has implications for the larger political system. So it's important to keep in mind how these things all flow together. All right. Good. We are done. Anybody have questions or comments about any of this? Now is your chance to be on camera. <laughs> what do you think about the sort of sense that scandals don't matter anymore, that partisanship limits the ability for scandals to impact people, and we don't agree on like what's wrongdoing anymore? What do you think about that idea? Agree? Disagree? Yeah. Hold on a second. They're going to come. You're going to get, you have to talk directly into the boom mic. <laughs> so, scandals don't matter, or do they? You tell me. 
I think they do matter, but the problem is the public are now like they don't care. Mm -hmm. We are overwhelmed with apathy and ignorance. Yeah. Like they don't even know enough to care. Yeah. And they don't even care even if you try to tell them. So it's like it's happening, we notice it, but we forget it the moment the next scandal is up. Yeah. So it's like we're just waiting for the next high. So it's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And if we don't like kind of have agreement on what's a problem, then it's impossible for us to remedy that <laughs> and change the rules to make sure they don't happen because nobody likes it when scandals happen, right? It's never a good outcome, but it's definitely something that, yeah, presidents would like to avoid. And it's possible that if we all agree these things are bad, we fix it, it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, good question, good comment, yeah, yeah. Other thoughts? It's your chance to be on camera. Yeah, there you go, yeah. So, does scandal still matter or not? Yeah, question. Well, let you hold them. Uh -oh, okay, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, mine wasn't like so much of a question about that or like, mm. a comment about that. It was just that like when scandals do happen, I see a lot of like presidents like uh, Reagan and like Clinton kind of like not like defer it like uh, Nixon did, yeah. but kind of just be like, well, I just want to go back to being president. I want to go back to doing that. And, I, and they don't really like acknowledge the scandal too much. They yeah. just kind of like, you know, just put like pass it off and yeah. show more of their positive deeds. Uh, and I think that's like, I feel like in like a comparison to that, it's like kind of like in a relationship, you like cheat on the other person, yeah. but you're just like, okay, well, like that happened, I can't do anything about it, but I just want like us to go back the way things were. Yeah. Like it doesn't really work that way. Like, yeah. You gotta have to like at least acknowledge the yeah. fact of like what just happened. And I don't think that presidents really do that. Good, good, good point. Yeah, like apologies for wrongdoing are so modest now. Yeah, you don't see a lot of it. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure it works. Um, and so it's a good point, yeah. I know for like political reasons, they can't really outwardly be like, hey, yeah, this was what I did was wrong because that would just like ruin their chances of reelection or just like, yeah. you know, just accountability and everything. But yeah. like, I feel like it is just like a toxic mentality sort of thing. That's a great point. Do you think if presidents apologized after scandals that it would be like a welcome apology? Yeah, I, I, I'm wondering actually, we don't actually know the answer to this question, but it's a really good one because like you would expect it sort of in a normal situation, somebody apologizes for what they did wrong and you forgive them. But would we see the same level of forgiveness across partisanship? I'm not sure, yeah. A lot is expected from being presidential. Yeah. So the fact that you're apologizing, you're yeah. confirming that you've made a mistake, yeah. which that office should not even do in the first place. Yeah. So. That's it's, a good it's point. It's a bad look to apologize. Yeah, we don't know. I, yeah, exactly. I wish we knew more about this, but um, because I'm curious to see how like tr uh, contriteness plays into the survival element of it, right? Because if you knew you apologized and you would have forgiveness across the aisle, then presidents would do it all the time. But I'm not sure we see that. Rarely do they apologize. Like Clinton eventually apologized right for the Lewinsky scandal, but like you rarely see presidents apologizing like directly. I'm sorry I did this. Uh, yeah, good, good point. Yeah, other comments? Yeah, Tegan. Oh, hold on a second. Yeah, she's he's gonna shift the camera, so, <laughs> yes. Like, um, Hunter Biden's scandals, a lot of them, like, the president can apologize for them, because, like, mm -hmm. that's, like, a different person. So, yeah. like, when they found cocaine in the Oval Office, or, like, when, you know, the whole thing with foreign policies, like, with him in China, it's kind of hard to apologize for mm -hmm. other people's actions. And I think in that circumstance, like, like, 
at what point do you realize that they're related to each other? Yeah. And like, maybe he should apologize for those actions. And I think if he did apologize for them, I think that the apology would be, you know, not well taken, like he said. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, like on some stuff you can't apologize because it's like admitting guilt and maybe you don't think you are guilty, so you wouldn't see it. But like on a personal scandal, you might see it more often because that's a scenario where it's your wrongdoing and apologizing for it doesn't implicate you legally. But it's a great question about whether it would be accepted or not and which would be accepted or not. I think it's a really cool question, yeah. Other thoughts? All right. All right. Well, good. We're done. Thanks for like accommodating. Um, we'll have a break, so you won't see me next week, um, unless you're at the Cougars game, <laughs> in which case I'll see you there. Um, otherwise, after the break, we'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to this week's Lectures in History podcast. To find even more history content, visit c-span.org slash ahtv.